It's an exciting time of year. We're going to take a little uh, momentary pause from our studies through Matthew to look at uh, a couple different texts that I hope are going to properly position us, if you will, for the coming year. Um, you know, the, the, I just think it's a time of year that holds so much hope. Again, uh, you know, it, I always appreciate this time of year personally because it, it just, it's a time of new beginnings. And it certainly may not be significant theologically, but I do think that there is something symbolically about the turning of that page of the calendar. You know, a fresh new year, it's kind of like that, that clean slate. And for so many of us, so often it feels like we so need that. And, and I'm sure that lots of us gave up that idea of New Year's resolutions long ago. And yet, I just think that looking ahead at the prospect of a new year just brings that hope that we could make some changes, you know, put things back into order that may have suddenly or maybe not so suddenly kind of drifted out of order in our lives. And, you know, for it's different for all of us. Maybe for some of us it's in the area of personal finance or of diet or health or fitness kind of things. Or maybe for others it's just looking at that schedule again and home and life and priorities. Or maybe it's just trying to achieve a better sense of balance. And I think we all have this sense that we need something in our lives to kind of counteract that natural process of slipping into decay and disorder. And I think that we're going to find one of the best and one of the most practical examples of this essential truth in what is kind of one of the more seemingly unlikely of places in the scriptures. Because this morning I'd love you to turn with me not to one of those fantastic parables of Jesus, but instead turn to the book of Second Kings. We're going to be in chapter 22. And in it, I really believe that we find this textbook example of that decay and the disorder that always occurs whenever we allow things to become kind of out of balance. But we're also going to see really the Lord's prescription for that and his provision as he wants to, to unite and, and give direction and provide healing. And I hope that it's really going to give us some encouragement as we, you know, prepare just this week to set out in the course of the coming new year. So let's just pray and ask that the Lord would show those things to us and bless his word today. Father, we do thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to be together, Lord, as your sons, your daughters, Lord, united into the body of Christ um, by the death of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning, Lord, as we open your word, as we do each and every week, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, Lord. Speak those things to our hearts that you know we so desperately need to hear. We thank you, Lord, and we just set this side, this time aside to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Kings 22 is the story of young King Josiah. And that name Josiah means whom Jehovah heals. And that is precisely what Josiah did. He brought at least a measure of healing to the nation of Israel. 
Uh, King Josiah lived at a time that was filled with great wickedness. It was a critical point in history when God would very soon be bringing judgment upon these wayward children because of the way that they had ignored him. Essentially, they had excluded him completely from their lives. It was a time when the nation of Israel was sick and it was in desperate need of healing because of the carelessness and the idolatry of the people. And Josiah was a man through whom at least this small measure of revival, one last revival historically, would come before Israel's judgment. And as we look this morning, I think at the story historically, I think again, perhaps that we can all relate to this situation personally at least a little bit, right? Perhaps there are some lives here today that are in need of a similar kind of healing, right? That maybe lives that are suffering the effects of allowing things, you know, of the Lord being maybe more excluded from our lives than he should be. Maybe it's the result of carelessness. Maybe it is even some sort of idolatry that has crept in. You know, we talk about idolatry in the Old Testament, and we think we have a picture of what that means. But in our lives, idolatry really is putting anything before that position of priority that the Lord should occupy in our lives and in our, our relationships. And so I would suspect that each one of us this morning are looking for some sense of revival. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure there are some here with us this morning maybe who've given up hope, right? Just kind of resigning ourselves that things were just going to be the way that they are. But I think what we'll see is that God can heal. He can bring restoration, and he can do it even into the worst of situations. And in our text today, the situation couldn't have gotten much worse. Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh, and he was one of the wickedest kings in the history of, of Israel. He led the entire nation into this wicked idolatry. And then Manasseh's son, Josiah's father, was Ammon, and he just kind of continued right along in those very same footsteps and kind of left his son Josiah to pick up the pieces. So look in the first couple verses of 2 Kings Chapter 22, it says that Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adihah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So at just eight years old, Right? He could be back in the children's ministry right now. But at eight years old, Josiah was given the throne of the kingdom of Judah and started what would be a 31-year reign that ultimately would be characterized by peace and by prosperity and by reform. It says that he followed after the example. He walked in the footsteps of Israel's greatest king, King David. Notice it says he didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He just walked this straight path. And there's such beautiful balance that we find in the kingdom of God. And so often as Christians, I think we can make the mistake of drifting too far either to the right or off to the left. 
you know, we can drift off to the right and we become legalistic. We get kind of this I'm right and everybody else is wrong sort of mentality and we become terribly rigid. And of course, looking at the book of Matthew, we think about the Pharisees. They were way off to the right. Or just as dangerously, we can drift off toward the left. Right? We start exercising too much liberty. And we see the Sadducees in the days of Jesus. These were the ones that had veered off too far to the left and ultimately denied the truth of God's word entirely. So in the kingdom, consistency is such a key. We need to be careful of, of constantly searching for or, or getting caught up in whatever the latest thing is that's running through the church. You know, Paul encouraged the believers at Ephesus that as we mature in Christ, he said we should no longer be children, what, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. He says, but that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So remember that in, in God's economy, the, the pathway to peace with the Lord, the, the pathway to the peace of the Lord is that path that is straight, right? Not veering off too far to the right or to the left, but straight and guided by the word of God. And as we do this, look what it says there in verse two. As we do this, we will do what is right in the sight of the Lord, just like Josiah did. Now, you Old Testament history students know that King Josiah of the kings of Judah, he was the fourth and the final king to bring reform. We think about Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. And yet what we know about Josiah is that his reforms were more extensive than any of those who'd come before. And if we look at the companion account of his life in 2 Chronicles, we learn that it wasn't until he was actually 16 years old that he began to seek the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 34, it says that in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So here in the same account, we see that when he was 20, right in the 12th year of his reign, he started to really clean up the country of all of this idolatry of Manasseh and Ammon. And his ultimate goal was to bring the nation back to the worship of the Lord. But what he knew is that he had to destroy the old sins before he could establish this new sense of obedience. And again, in that companion text, it says he, he tore down the altars of the false god Baal. He tore down the incense altars and the, the wooden carved molded images that they were worshiping. But then, if you read further, we discover that he took it a step further. Because it says that not only did he tear these things down and break them into pieces, but it tells us that he actually made dust out of them. In other words, he ground them into powder. And the reason was he wanted there to be absolutely no remembrance of any of these things. He's trying to remove any conceivable access to any form of idolatry that had been plaguing the tribe of Judah. And what's interesting is that throughout all of the accounts of the kings of Israel, 
we see this pattern repeated by all of these different reformers. They would remove the idols from the high places, right? These, these high places were these pagan plateaus on the top of which this wicked worship would be performed. So they would remove the idols, but they would leave the high places themselves. And inevitably what would happen is that the people would just return back up there and reset up this pagan worship again years and years later. And I think this is significant for us this morning, and I mention it as we're sort of looking forward to this new year and this fresh start, because there can be such a danger for each one of us in our lives of removing the idols, but allowing the high places to still remain. Does that make sense? We can address an issue, at least we've addressed it for now, but we've kind of still left the door open for there to be future problems because we haven't torn these things down completely. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 13 that we're to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So don't keep those sites bookmarked in your browser just in case you get a craving again, and don't keep that bottle tucked away out in the garage or in the closet in case you might need a sip or three, and don't keep that guy's cell number in case nobody else is texting you in the next three weeks, right? Don't keep nurturing and don't keep watering that root of bitterness in your hearts just in case that person hurts you again. See, these are such perfect examples. We see here from Josiah the way the Lord, I think, would instruct us on how we need to keep ourselves accountable to him in these dangers of these secret sins, right? It's not just about confessing the sins and, and trying to avoid it, but we need to grind it up, right? We need to, as best we can, remove even the possibility of sin. We need to remove that pitfall of having access to those high places, in our own lives that are so damaging and so discouraging in our own walks. You know, whatever that is for each one of us. Now, what we're going to see here with Josiah is he's now purged away the idols. Now, at the ripe old age of 26 years old, now he could really concentrate on reestablishing the true worship of Jehovah. Look at verses 3 through 7. It says that it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord." Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. So here he sends Shaphan, right, one of his advisors, down to the temple And they're commanding the priests to gather up the money and they're entrusting the repair of the temple into this this group of these faithful, reputable contractors, right? Now, what we know is that at this time in the history of the nation, though it was still functioning, the house of the Lord had fallen into absolute disrepair. 
It had even been desecrated by Manasseh, who you remember had built pagan altars and images right in the middle of it. And here I think we see another important part of the wisdom that God gave young Josiah because he understood that it's not enough just to tear down those areas of false worship, but he also needed to build up and make provision for the true righteous worship. And for the Jews, this was the temple, right? The temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. It was that national center of their worship life. Now, for each of us, this may mean rebuilding of what should be the center of our worship life. And that's that place and that time that affords us that intimate communion with the Lord, right? It's that personal, devotional, and prayer time where we meet with the Lord daily in order to minister to him, but also to receive from him. To really make that the priority of our day. Now, don't miss the significance here in our story because we're seeing the beginnings of this full-scale revival breaking out. And we'll see, we'll see that it begins here with the repairing of the house of the Lord. And that's not just interesting, it's important because what we know is that revival will always begin first with God's people. Revival always begins in the heart of God's people, and then it spreads outward from there to the lost. Because we see the church start to experience this new and this fresh power. And what we see next at the heart of our text this morning is that while they're cleaning these things up, they're going to make this tremendously important discovery. And it's one that would as well be at the centerpiece of revival. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read from it. So while they were cleaning up the temple, the high priest discovers this copy of the book of the law. Now that phrase, the book of the law, simply refers to the writings of Moses, right? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what they found was this copy of God's word to his people, which had long since been thrown away by a nation that was steeped in idolatry. And many Bible students believe, it's very possible, it's even probable historically, that during the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, that all of the other copies of the scriptures had been destroyed except potentially for this one copy, which perhaps had been hidden away by somebody there in the temple. And what a great encouragement because it's a testimony to the fact that the word of God is enduring. It's everlasting. And yet, notice, isn't it intriguing, as we look at this verse, that the word of God was lost where? It was lost in the house of God. And it's intriguing, it's ironic, but unfortunately, it's exactly what happens far too often, especially in our culture today. We think about churches that meet, but there's so little emphasis on God's word. God's word gets lost in liturgy. It gets buried in ritual. It gets deconstructed, right, for, for 
the sake of conversation or it's completely set aside for the, you know, for relatability. And yet notice also that the very place where it was lost was where it was found. And I think that's important for us because it says that the church, we as the church can and we should be that preserving force, right? We should be the guardians, if you will, of the word of God. But the warning, of course, is that even the guardians need to guard against the possibility that the word of God is just being lost in our society nationally or in the house of God collectively, but the word of God can be lost in our own homes individually. The word of God can be lost in our own hearts personally. And that is precisely why here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View and all the different Calvary Chapel churches in the church family, we make the simple teaching of the word of God, we hold it as such a priority. It's precisely why we want to be focused as a church this year in continuing to build those habits of being in the scriptures each and every day in whatever way works best for you. But somehow taking in the whole counsel of God, right, from Genesis to Revelation and just allowing the word of God to speak and unfold naturally for itself. Really, you're allowing the Lord to speak for himself. And what's most encouraging is notice that just as God preserved his word down throughout the ages, he's going to preserve us as well. And he's going to do it through his word. What we need to remember is that even in the midst of all of the, the debris in our own lives, whatever idolatry or commotion or destruction, God is going to pull us through all of those things. Right? Because here, the very same place that the word was lost was the place that it was preserved and it was protected and it was found again. So God is very willing and he's wanting presently to bring revival through his word. And that's precisely what we see historically. And it begins here with one individual. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says that Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. So he gives him kind of this quick progress report on how the temple repair program is coming along, and then he lets Josiah know about this important discovery, and then it says there that he read from it. Now, we can assume that Josiah probably had some bit of godly instruction in his youth. Maybe he understood some aspect of the law. Maybe he was familiar to a point with the Ten Commandments, but he had never heard the whole law read in its entirety. And now he could fully understand what was about to come upon his people. And praise the Lord, I think, for the faithfulness of Shaphan that he took and he ministered the word to the king because it was his faithfulness that was about to directly lead to a spiritual revival across the entire land of Israel. 
So remember, in, in our lives, God doesn't preserve his word so that we can stick it in some sort of airtight container and put it off in some museum somewhere so we can kind of look at it and marvel over it. He doesn't preserve his word so that we can see how many copies or, or versions of the Bible we can stack up on our shelves or, or load onto our cell phones, right? God wants his word to be read, and to be shared, that's why he's preserved it. So the key is to read it and to believe it, not just to have it. Now, before we move on, I was reminded of the story. There's this young boy who goes to his father and he says, wow, daddy, mommy's Bible must be a lot more interesting than yours is. And the dad says, well, why is that? And his son replies, well, because she reads hers a lot more than you read yours. So men, fathers, husbands, dads, let's just suffice to say, as the spiritual leaders in our homes, nobody should be reading their Bibles as much as we should. Amen? That was weak sauce, guys. Amen? <laughs> right? It's only as we know God's word and as we have it in our hearts that we as leaders can rightly minister it to those that we're trying to lead. Look what happens in verse 11. It says, Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. So why? Why did he tear his clothes? Well, because surely he now realized just how far off course they really were. When he heard the, the law being read immediately, he knew that Judah was in danger. He was so terrified, I think, with the consequences of disobedience that were so clearly communicated here in this book that he goes into mourning and he's tearing his clothes. You know, in, in James chapter 1, James compares God's word to what? There's your first clue. Oh, that's not, not up there yet. Oh, he compares it to a mirror, right? He says it's a mirror that, you know, we look in and, and we, you know, we, we gaze into it. It reveals our shortcomings. So here, Josiah had looked into the mirror of the word and he saw his own sin and he saw the sin of his people. And he saw it in a completely fresh and new way. And this is so important, I think, because for some of us, especially maybe some of you who have walked with the Lord for a while, Sometimes what happens is we lose a little bit of the wonder that comes from reading the Bible for the very first time. Do you remember that? Do you remember how the words just jumped off the page at you? Do you remember how you just couldn't believe that all of those precious promises actually applied to you? And then what happens, though, is that as we mature in our faith... Sometimes we can tend to lose some of the wonder of the word and it gets replaced, or rather I should say we get caught up by the weight of the word. And what I mean by that is that sometimes in our effort to really know and to understand, we kind of trade in that childlike faith and we replace it with this kind of skepticism, right? This kind of analytical intellectualism that seemingly can't be satisfied and what happens then is that the word of God just seems to dry up we think about Paul right the apostle Paul perhaps the most accomplished theologian ever 
He said that knowledge what? Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he says, this one is known by him. See, God reveals his heart about us. He reveals his love for us, and he does it through his word to us. That's what he's communicating, his heart and his love. And he wants to do that continually as we walk and we grow with him. God still wants to show each one of us things. Some may be for the first time, but others, maybe they're things that he, he needs to show us because we've forgotten them. Maybe it's because that truth has just become kind of common to us. So don't ever let the word become common. Right? We need to ask the Lord to speak to us as we read the Bible this coming year. And then we need to open it up expecting that he's going to do just that. So we need to rediscover kind of the wonder of the word. And then just see what it does as God puts it down deep in our hearts. Because notice as we continue in the text, watch what happens. Josiah now has heard the word personally right and now watch the way he launches right into action nationally right look at verses 12 and 13 it says that then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest Ahakam the son of Shaphan Akbor the son of Micaiah Shaphan the scribe and Asiah the servant of the king saying go inquire of the Lord for me for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So he's responding, right, to that conviction that the Spirit is bringing as he's hearing the word read. And he was truly repentant. But not only over his own sin, but the sin as well of his people. Specifically, he's hearing the book of the law. He's realizing that God's word is true and that it's been prophesied that because of their rebellion, that the nation was about to be carried away captive. He realized that the nation was guilty of everything God said would have brought about judgment. And I believe Josiah understands that he is probably living in those times. And for us, I think we need to have that same realization. Right? It's not going to be too much longer. The Lord's going to carry us away. And the, this world is guilty and it's deserving of judgment. And we are living right at those times. Notice the, the conviction he has in God's word. It, it wasn't just something common to him. He didn't see all the signs, but just assume somehow that it wasn't about to happen during his time. And I'm afraid sometimes that we can have this tendency. We become kind of desensitized, don't we, as the years go by. But we are living in the very times that Daniel and that Ezekiel spoke about prophetically. We're living in the very times that Paul writes about emphatically. We just look at what's happening politically, right? On a, on a daily, sometimes even an hourly basis in the Middle East or in Europe. And how many of us have this same reaction to God's word? How many of us really believe that we're living at a time when the return of the Lord is imminent? 
See, Bible prophecy isn't just something that should become common or academic for us, but it needs to lead us to act, lead us to live out the gospel, lead us to get out the good news to anyone we can while we still can. And I love the way that Josiah doesn't waste any time. Notice he doesn't sit around whining or worrying about the situation. He's not whimpering about his sin, but he takes action. And see, this is always the evidence of a heart that's truly repentant. It's not just agony. It's not apology. It's action. And here Josiah's very first action is the very best place to start because what does it say he wants to do? He wants to inquire of the Lord. And just those words are so super significant because the nation here beginning with its leadership was turning back to the Lord for direction and for guidance. And this by definition is a revival. And it's the result of the power of the word of God. And in fact, as you read and study the great revivals throughout church history, what you find is that the common characteristic of a revival is that people have this hungering for the scriptures and the studying of God's word. And that very same thing is what will bring about revival in each of our lives. It's that return to inquiring of the Lord through his written word to us. Allowing the spirit to illuminate inside of us. You know, we are blessed perhaps more than any because we have this completed testimony of the scriptures and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, right, to give us understanding and to lead us and to guide us into understanding the truth. Now, that wasn't always the case, was it, in the Old Testament? The Spirit of God didn't indwell believers, but worked specifically and worked supernaturally through these specifically chosen prophets. Look what we see next in verse 14. It says that Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. And she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. So here we have the five-man team. They see the king's anxiety. They seek out this woman named Hulda, right? The wife of Shulam, the guy who was probably in charge of the, the king's and probably the priest's wardrobe. Obviously, she was highly respected as a prophetess, and conveniently, she lived right there in Jerusalem. And Hulda, after consulting with the Lord, look at this, the message that she's going to deliver to the anxious king. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says, Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Whoa. Kind of wish you'd stayed home, right? So the first part of the message is pretty painfully clear. Yes, Judah and Jerusalem would be judged for their sins just as God had warned 
in the law of Moses, right? They had forsaken him. They'd made idols. They'd burned incense. You know, God's anger was burning against his people because they had strayed from the path and the purpose that he had laid out for them, right? It was that path that he had put in front of them where they could experience blessing and they could enjoy life and they could be this demonstration to other peoples of how glorious it was to live under the leadership of the Lord. And when you think about it, that is a pretty awesome and a high calling, isn't it? But when you think about it, that is our calling as well, right? Because just as Israel was then, we are now, we are trophies of God's grace, right? We are examples of his mercy. We're a testimony to everyone who's around us. Now, calamity was God's judgment on Israel corporately, but, it says in verse 18, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought word to the king. So the second part of the message is just a little bit more encouraging, right? King Josiah himself wouldn't see any of these judgments because he'd humbled himself before the Lord. So this is so super significant. God indeed, he was going to be faithful to his word. He would justly bring this judgment on the nation corporately, but Josiah instead of experiencing God's judgment, he would experience God's mercy personally, simply because he had responded to God's word. He'd humbled himself before the Lord under the conviction of the Spirit. It says there in verse 19 that when he heard the law of Moses, his heart was what? It was tender. And the idea there in the language is that it was timid. It was soft like wax. It was impressionable. And if we're not careful, we can allow our hearts so easily to become calloused, right? We can get hurt by circumstances or hurt by people in our lives. And to protect ourselves, we kind of allow our hearts to grow stiff and hard. Or we get hardened because of this ongoing sin that we allow to remain in our lives, very clear warning in the book of Hebrews. It says we can so easily become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that is such a dangerous place to be. And yet the lesson from the life of King Josiah is clear and it's encouraging that God pays attention to hearts that are tender towards him, hearts that are humble before him. We think about King David, right, in Psalm 51 after repenting of those terrible sins, right, his adultery with Bathsheba, the cover-up murder of her husband, he writes that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So here with Josiah, God said that the king would die and be buried before this judgment came upon the land of Judah. And you know what we find historically? Josiah died in 609, four short years before Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would come in with his first wave of attack on Jerusalem, which resulted in most of the population of Judah being carried away captive. And so reading this chapter, we kind of get the idea that, in a sense, Josiah sort of postponed God's judgment, right? Because of his heart and because of his actions and because of his prayers. And fittingly, the book of James, James says that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And yet for each of us here this morning, our hearts of repentance before the Father can produce or, or have already produced an even greater miracle even than we're seeing here. Because, because of the death of our Savior Jesus on the cross, that made it possible that our repentance leads to our salvation, which isn't just the pushing back of judgment. It's not just the postponing of judgment. It's the removal of God's wrath upon us for our sins. This is God's great purpose. Right? For mankind collectively, it's his great purpose for each one of us here personally. Right, Revival, true revival, not just in the things that we do, but real revival in our souls. And he accomplishes it using his word. Right? The prophet Isaiah records God's words reminding us that my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now, if you read the next chapter, maybe when you get home, what you see is that Josiah's personal revival is about to lead to national restoration. Right? You see that he reaffirms with the people, right? The covenant of God, the, the continuing purging of this idolatry from the land because God's word never returns void. So as we finish up this morning, I would trust right, that each of us who are here today are here today because we desire some kind of a revival in our lives. We're ready for a revival right, in our lives and we're ready for a revival in our church and in the body of Christ and certainly in our nation but what I don't want us to miss this morning is this very clear teaching, right, that in the, the scriptures as well as the evidence of God's people that true revival based on real repentance always begins with the rediscovery of the word of God. So whatever it is for you this morning, do you want to see your marriage healed? Rediscover the word. Do you want to see your family changed? Rediscover the word. If you want peace and you want wholeness in your life, rediscover the word. Maybe you're struggling with your temper or with lust or with bitterness. Rediscover the word. Maybe for you, you're just at that point where your walk with the Lord has become barren and it's become dry. 
rediscover the word. See, the, the symptoms are always different, but the prescription is always the same, right? Rediscover the word. And then as you do that, watch and wait and expect that God is going to do great things for you. And he's going to do them as we head off into this new year with him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the great encouragement that you give to us through it, Lord. We thank you for the way that you use your word in our lives. Father, truly, whatever, um, whatever the symptoms, Lord, are, we know that your word is powerful and it's effective um, and that you'll use it to bring about change and to provide healing and to bring restoration. Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning that are struggling in any area, Lord, that they would come, Lord, as we worship or come after we close, Lord, and seek out one of the prayer counselors, Lord. Seek out another brother or sister in the body who can pray for them, Lord. Um, Lord, we would pray that you would help our unbelief, Lord. Help to give us an appetite, a hunger, a heart to do the things that we need to, Lord, to be in the word this year and to allow your spirit to minister. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and let's worship the Lord this morning. Amen. Amen.